Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is a podcast where guests tell me the five things from their life that they would like to have in a time capsule. They pick four things from any time in their life, an object, a person, a place, a gig, even a smell. They also pick one thing that they would like to forget, and we bury it, so they never have to think about it again. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian and podcaster, Rachel Fairburn. Rachel is from Manchester and featured in Chortle's One to Watch list in 2020. She's also been a finalist of several prestigious competitions, including Funny Women, City Life Comedian of the Year, The Natties, which is very appropriate if you know anything about me, and English Comedian of the Year. Rachel is co-host and co-writer, along with her friend Kiri Pritchard-McLean, of the worldwide smash hit podcast All Killer No Filler. With a huge international following of over a quarter of a million listeners and growing, they've taken the podcast on several sellout UK tours and a tour of the USA. Rachel's also started a new podcast, Ghoul Guide, which I'll let her tell you about in our chat. Rachel has been a staple of the Edinburgh Fringe since 2014, with six critically acclaimed solo shows under her belt, and she featured in the 40 Jokes of the Fringe by the Daily Telegraph in 2018 and Best Jokes from the Edinburgh Fringe 2022 in The Times. She's a regular on the UK stand-up circuit, and her TV credits include Alan Davies' As Yet Untitled, Richard Osman's House of Games, and the Russell Howard Hour Life Lessons. Rolling Stone magazine described her as very much the rock and roll star of British comedy. Well, I'll let you judge for yourself as we listen to the lovely Rachel Fairburn and the five things she wants to put in a time capsule. You're doing a gig tonight. Is that the start of your tour? Yeah, well, I'm doing some new material tonight, so I've got to work on that. It's only ten minutes of new material. It'll be fine. 
brilliant. But it shows just how sort of calm you get about doing stand-up. The idea that you go, well, I've got a tour starting in a few days and I've got, it's just 10 minutes tonight. That sort of relaxed attitude to it, for anybody who doesn't do it, is astonishing. Well, I tell you what, it's taken years for me to get like this because I used to be so nervous, like the nerves that I used to have that before every gig, I mean, I still get nervous now. I will get nervous before I go on stage. Mm. But I remember when I used to, you know, have a job as well as, you know, starting out in stand-up, all day I'd be at work and I'd be going, oh God, what am I doing? Oh God, I can't believe I'm doing this tonight. Couldn't concentrate, couldn't eat, couldn't relax. And then of course you do the gig and you go, oh, and the relief that you've done it is so, oh, it's such a, a nice feeling that you've done it. Yeah. But it's it's taken years for me to get, it. And, and don't get me wrong, I mean, coming up to the tour, because it's my Edinburgh show that I did every day in Edinburgh and I've done it a few times since, I can't remember it now. <laughs> Every day I'm thinking about it and I'm going, I can't remember this. I wrote this and I can't remember it. So I'm going to have a few days of going through it, yeah, updating a few things because a lot's happened. Do you do it in front of someone? Do you have someone who watches it while you do it or do you do it by yourself? No, I can, I can never do that, never. Oh. It's like my, my worst nightmare. So not like an actor. An actor yeah. would say, can you watch me do this and see if it's okay? Oh, God, no. No, that's, that's my absolute worst nightmare. <laughs> I mean... It's even sort of, you know, if you run material past people as well, that's... So I've run a lot of stuff by my by my mum because she's the funniest person I know and she's amazing. So if I have an idea, I'll be like, what do you think about this idea? And I'm totally fine with it, with doing it in front of my mum. But if I said to one of my friends who doesn't do comedy, what do you think about this idea? It, it's the word... As soon as it leaves your mouth, you go, oh, why have I said this? Because <laughs> it never comes across as funny and they just go... Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Uh, it, from, that, I can see how somebody else could make that funny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that. Well, it's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, and so I, the thought of doing that, even when my boyfriend will, will come and stay with me sometimes and he'll be working in the living room and I sort of pace around my bedroom going through stuff in my head. And if he sort of walks into the bedroom, I'm like, <laughs> and I just stop doing what I'm doing, like <laughs> as if I've been caught doing something. It's... It's so, I find it so embarrassing. <laughs> but, you know, I've been married for 41 years. And oh, wow. I, I know. And still, if I'm sitting in a room basically trying to learn lines, so I'm mumbling to myself, uh-huh. my wife still comes in and says, are you talking to yourself? <laughs> go, yes, it's my job. Still after 41 years. <laughs> I remember years ago, it was Griff Reese jones and he was filming... And I was living in Manchester at the time. I'm from Manchester. I was, I was living there. And mm. I was on my lunch break from work and I was walking the street and Griff Reese jones was walking up the street and I can't remember what show he was filming. But as he was walking past me, he was sort of muttering to himself and blah, 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 blah. And I thought, oh, he must be going through his lines. <laughs> no, he's just mad. Is he just mad? <laughs> <laughs> it's just mad. <laughs> oh, he's just bonkers, yeah. He's just bonkers. <laughs> talks to himself all the time. It's crazy, man. <laughs> He's a lovely man, Griff. He's, he's very sweet. Well, so I'm glad that you are now finally relaxed about being a stand-up comedian because I don't think I ever would be. I say I am, but I don't know if I am. I mean, it's, it's always that kind of thing of... Do you know what I think the, the biggest thing about it is now? Because you're being self-employed, it's... So for the past four years, I, I you know, I've been a stand-up full-time for four years because, I, I, you know, I always had to have jobs to try and make ends meet and stuff. And then I moved to London and then I was like, oh, God, I've got to keep working and mm. the worry that I have I always think it's gonna be taken away from me at any minute you know because it's you're constantly looking for the next job and you're you're constantly going oh great well I've got this coming up uh, and I'm working towards that and that, that's where I think the nerves come from because you've 
once it's your job, mm. you've got to keep being good, which is great because you want to be good, but you've really got to keep working, working, working. So the worry that I have always comes from, am I doing enough? <laughs> am I good enough? But the nerves always, you should have nerves because that means you want to do well. Yeah. If you don't have nerves, that means you don't really care, doesn't it? As you say, there's an enormous amount of travelling. And you could very easily, for example, suddenly you go, great, I've been booked to do Live at the Apollo. Fantastic. That's a really great gig. And then you go, hang on a minute, I'm going to blow my act in one night. Yeah. I'm going to write another one. That's what people don't think about as well. I mean, I've done stand-up on TV. I think there was about six months between each recording. Mm-hmm. So it was the first time I'd ever done stand-up on TV. And I was like, brilliant, I can use stuff that I've been using in my club set for years that I'm not going to use again and, and stuff that I know that works. Brilliant. Mm. Bang, it's out. And then it's like, oh, do you want to come and do this one? I'm like, oh, no, I've got to use stuff that I've... It's quite recent. <laughs> but now it's, it's gone. Like, I can't I can't use it on TV anymore. I've got to... That's why you've got to keep working. you got to keep grafting. Yeah. And also, even when you're doing a tour show, people are always like, is this the same show? I saw this show. Is it the same one? People want different all the time. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it, really? Yeah. There was a time when comedians would write an act, hone it, and then perform it for the rest of their life. Yes, I know. Don't get me wrong, there's still some comedians doing that. <laughs> uh, which it amazes me because I just think, how bored must you get? I mean, because sometimes, if I've been doing a bit in my set for a while, which sometimes, I mean, to be honest, in my actual club set, there's jokes that I've got in there that I, I've had in for a long time. And I think, do you know what? It's funny, I'm going to keep it in. Mm. In the time that this has been in my set, I've written three hour-long shows that are totally different, so I'm going to take the pressure off myself. Yeah. But sometimes, you know when it's time to get rid of something because you're saying it and you're boring yourself? Uh. It's like you're sort of just saying it. And the best is you know when something's definitely gone because you start saying it in a different way and it's not funny anymore. Uh, it doesn't get a laugh, yeah. No, and you go, oh, it's time for that to go now. That happens on stage. I mean, if you've got a performer show over and over again, it's the same thing, isn't it? You can get bored with your own performance. and You're not bored yes. with the play. You're bored with what you're doing with it. Exactly, yes. You become your own worst critic. Oh, God, I am so critical of myself sometimes I don't even give myself the pat on the back that I deserve sometimes <laughs> like very very occasionally I'd say about three times a year I sort of go oh do you know what you've worked really hard and you've done all right so far and that'll be it like because I'm just constantly I'm a perfectionist mm -hmm. um but again I, I quite like that about myself it keeps me working yeah and it means you take risks I think Yes, that's another thing. In fact, that's something I want to do more this year, especially with my material. I love the look of the tour. Oh, do you like yeah, it? Yeah, I really do. Thank you. I think it's bold. There are certain people who go, oh, that looks a bit frightening. Yeah, like it's a, sort of an 80s Dallas, yeah. uh, John Collins sort of vibe. <laughs> but that's exactly what I wanted, something a bit, yeah, like you say, a bit scary. Yeah. A bit bitchy. <laughs> that's what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, you look all killer, no filler. There you go. I there like you that. go. Oh, very good. Oh, no, very I'm, good. I've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> Such a professional. <laughs> but that must be fun, that podcast. This is the ninth year we're going into now. Wow. And I can't believe it for something that started off. I mean, because me and Kiri, uh, Kiri Pritchard McLean, my uh, co writer and co host on it, mm. we, um, we used to live across the road from each other in Manchester. And it started off, we just used to record it in my living room. <laughs> now it's gone massive. And yeah. Yeah. 
it's brilliant. It is, it is really good fun. Mm. I've got another podcast now about ghosts as well, though. Oh, have you? Yeah, uh-huh. uh, Ghoul Guide. Oh. That's that's out now. What's that about? I, I mean, obviously, it's about a guide to ghouls, but uh, a guide to ghouls. Well, yeah. I absolutely love um, the supernatural. Fascinated by it. I mean, we'll talk about this a bit more mm-hmm. in, 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 in as we get there, but. So basically, it's I visited different haunted places around the UK, which was pretty hard for them to get somewhere that I didn't know about. And I get told three stories, and only one of them is true and two of them are false, and I have to ascertain which is the correct one <laughs> from exploring the supernatural uh, surrounding that I'm in. Uh, and that's out now. You can listen to that wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, uh, brilliant. So I loved doing that, yeah. Brilliant. Well, if we're going to explore it later, I won't probe. Yes, but, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right, well, let's start then. Let's talk about things that you want to put into a time capsule. So what's your first thing? My first thing I want to put in is my childhood toy. Who is called... now? I didn't know that this sounded funny until a few years ago when I told someone what it was called and then they were laughing. So now as an adult, it sounds funny. He's called Woeful Willie. Um, and the reason he's called that is because he's sad. He's a sad little orange dog. So basically, I got when I was three years old, I can't remember what I'd done. I think I'd done well at school or done something good. And my mum said, we're going to go to Asda. You can pick any toy that you want. You can pick anything. So and my mum still laughs at this now. So we went into Asda and, of course, you've got all the, the Barbies and you've got their Cabbage Patch dolls and you've got all this kind of stuff. Anything I could ha- I wanted, I could have. And I, my mum said, you went and picked the saddest-looking dog, <laughs> orange toy dog that was cheap. She was like, are you sure you want this? I was like, yeah, I definitely want this. And that was it. I was so... And my mum said, what are you going to call him? And I said, uh, Woeful Willie, because he's sad, right? <laughs> So even to this day, because I used, it was my toy that I used to sleep with, when I go to sleep, I keep this hand here like that because that's how I used to hold him when I went to sleep. So I still... Sort of cuddling him. Yeah, so I still... My hand is still like that when I go to sleep. And I have to say, I did uh, used... To, even when I was a younger adult, I did used to keep him uh, in, the, <laughs> in the bed. But what I love about him is he's been there through everything. So... You know, I spent of like I used to live with my grandparents when I was growing up, not for any bad reason, mm-hmm. but just basically because my mum and dad were always at work. My grandparents lived across the road, and he spent so much time with them, and I absolutely loved them. Yeah. So you know, he was always there through that. He was there when I started secondary school. He was there when I started going to nightclubs. <laughs> he was there when I moved to London. I remember on my tenth birthday, we went on holiday uh, just to Cornwall. I mean, it was my birthday's in September, so I was actually taken out of school to go on holiday, but whatever. Didn't matter then, did it? And um, <laughs> It doesn't matter now. Doesn't matter now, does it? And I made, I got, like, a, a, a kit to make friendship bracelets, and I made a friendship bracelet and I put it round his neck, and he's still got it on now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the one thing that I always think... I'm not sort of... Um, a precious person about possessions or anything like that. I'm not, you know, uh, and I'm not into luxury items or or stuff like that. But if someone said to me, there's only one item you can keep and everything else has to go, I would absolutely keep Woeful Willie. Brilliant. Because he's just, uh, I mean, he's just, he's a bit, he's a bit, he needs a good wash, but I'm scared to death of putting him in the washing machine now. (laughs) Yeah. Because he'll probably fall to bits. But um, yeah, he's been the one constant and uh, I just think it's such a nice thing to have kept something for all those years. It is. Yeah. It's a lovely thing. When you don't, when there comes a time, a lot of children, in a way, 
I remember my own children doing this, sort of going, I think I need to move these things off my bed now, Dad. You go, okay. And you'd suddenly go and you find them all in a black plastic bin liner. And you think, are you sure? And I put them in the loft. Yes. Maybe when you become a teenager, you know, like, a bit embarrassed about, you know, I want to be a grown-up, that kind of thing. I, I was never like that. I've just loved having it there. I mean, I know he's a toy. He doesn't have a personality. Yeah. He's just there all the time. And I, he's one of those things that I just know I'm going to have forever. And the, the thought of losing him or him being stolen, that's what I <laughs> think. Oh, God, what if someone broke in and, like, they left my iPad and, and everything else and they stole him? That would be my worst nightmare. <laughs> Maybe it's indicative, though, of the fact that you don't, you don't care what people think of you. You are just yourself. No. Exactly. Do you know, that's, that is that is very true. And, you know, for, I know, again, we'll get to it in a bit. I, I used to be such a, a shy person and, and used to be so worried what people think about me. Oh, now I'm not really bothered. You know, I don't really care. I'm, I'm actually proud that I've still got my childhood toy. I remember watching, there's a, a, a doll sort of toy hospital in, in Scotland because it was a woman. She must have been in sort of, I'd say, early to mid-60s. And she'd had her, she'd kept her childhood bare. Mm. But he was in really bad condition and, and I think it was her children that sent him to the, the toy hospital to be, you know, patched up and, and thing. And it was her opening the box. So she opened the box and she lifted him out. And, uh, you know, it's so stupid. I get really goosey thinking about this because it was such a lovely thing. She lifted him out and she just burst into tears and she hugged it. And I just thought, that's so lovely because that's something, that reminds you of being a child. Mm. And it probably reminds you of, your parents and your your grandparents and, and nice things. And I, and I just thought it was such a lovely thing to see, like, a grown adult just revert to that. Yeah. Just, like, childlike, genuine happiness. And I just thought it was really lovely. I don't think those feelings do lose... Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, blimey. I hope there he is. There we go. <laughs> and at that moment, he died. <laughs> That's the end of him. I don't think those feelings do leave you. I just think a lot of people are told you're not really supposed to show them. Yes, I think that's true. Yeah. And I think there's there's nothing lovelier than seeing it, I think. Because that thing would have been there when you were happy, so it would have been exciting moments, you know, going to bed, it's Christmas, and you cuddle up. Yes. Woe for Willie, and then, but also going to bed sad. It's your comfort blanket as well. Exactly, mm. exactly. You know, I find it really nice that even, you know, obviously, as I'm not, I wouldn't sleep with teddy bear now. As I mean, I say that, maybe I do, <laughs> but that's my business. Yes. I think, but I think it's so nice that I keep my hand like that because it, you know, it was it's such a comforting thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The fact it's that just, you're still in that nice... that same position as you were when you were a child. Yeah. Maybe it's a good job you don't sleep with him because I have a feeling, you know, going away for the weekend with friends or something and staying somewhere and saying, right, I'm off to bed. Oh no, God, I forgot me Willie. <laughs> yeah, probably best that I leave him here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we'll make sure that he's safe inside the time capsule. Absolutely. Thank you. What a great thing. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Okay, Rachel, what's number two? Two is Cornwall, the place. Mm-hmm. I love it. Do you know when you go somewhere and you, you instantly feel oh, relaxed, like the weight of the world has been taken off your shoulders yeah. and you think, oh, this is, this is perfect. So family holidays growing up, we either went to South Wales to visit my dad's family mm-hmm. or we went to Cornwall. That was, like, I've never been abroad with my family. We never had fancy holidays. But uh, when we used to go to Cornwall, it was so exciting. So my dad, he's been a driver all his life. So he, he used to drive 
lorries and then he drove taxis and now he's a, a coach driver so anything that was driving he would plan he, you know really like <laughs> i'm a professional driver i know what i'm doing and he'd plan the journey and you had to stick to it so from manchester when we're going to cornwall uh, and we used to take my grandma every every holiday as well but my, my granddad would never go on holiday <laughs> uh, he never went anywhere and do you know why i think this is i, I think because he was in the army during world war Two, and i think he obviously travelled around a lot and he was away from home and all that kind of stuff. I think that he was like, do you know what, I'm at home now. I do not want to go anywhere else. Mm. I'm just going to stay at home. So he used to stay at home. We'd take my grandma with us and we'd leave from Manchester at midnight. <laughs> we'd leave at midnight and we'd drive down. That's your dad. That's what that is. That's your dad saying, we'll avoid the traffic. It's a good way to go. Absolutely, mm-hmm. that's it. And I always remember I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up when we got to Exeter Services <laughs> and I'd be very excited and then we'd get to Cornwall and we'd always, you know, we wouldn't stay in a hotel, we'd always get like a, hire a house, you know, like a little bungalow or something. And I just, sort of happy memories, just beautiful scenery. I just love it down there. Mm. There's always something that you'll find in Cornwall, like there'll, there'll be a new pub that you'll find or there'll be a new bit, you know, like, oh, I didn't know about this village or... It's just incredible. Mm. It's just the most beautiful place. And I, I absolutely love introducing people to it as well. So it's like, so my boyfriend, Tim, who's from Lincolnshire, he, uh, he'd he never been to Cornwall. So when we got together, I mean, I think he was trying to impress me. We'd only been together a few months. <laughs> he uh, he was like, oh, um, we're going to go to Cornwall. I've booked us somewhere to stay. And I was like, oh, great, okay. And he'd never been. And he, he's fallen in love with it as well. Like, I just think it's, it's just the one place that I go, oh, thank God, I'm here I love it. <laughs> I love going across a bridge, sort of out of Devon. Have you been that way, where you go? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You go past Plymouth, and then a little bit further on, there's a sign that says Cornwall, and you go across a bridge. It does feel like you're going abroad. It does. It's, it, that's the other thing about Cornwall. Like, it's like a diff... It's, it's very much its own place. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, lot of, a lot of people, Cornish people, want Cornish independence, and I can totally see that, because <laughs> they're so far removed from the rest of the country. Yeah. It's like its own magical place, and it, it's, I just absolutely love it. See, are you like me, Rachel, in as much as I like a place that has lovely little villages, country pubs, beautiful deserted coves, but I also like a seafront with amusement arcades on it. Yes, yes, yes. I am exactly like that. <laughs> I love both of those things. Little seaside amusement arcades, absolutely love them. Yeah. Love the uh, little souvenir shops that sell all kinds of tap. <laughs> on my bookcase there, I've got like a, a little crab that I've bought from uh, somewhere on Wells on Sea or something like that. I can't remember where I'd been. I'll always come back with some, like my mum always says, any old rubbish, you'll have it. Mm. I absolutely love magnets, figurines, love a local history book as well. But yeah, I do love, I love the mixture of both. I love, you know, the wild sort of sea and, you know, oh, isn't this wonderful, the countryside? And then I'm like, come on, let's have chips and get in the arcade. (laughs) Let's have a bit of karaoke. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) let's have a bit of karaoke. Absolutely. (laughs) Do I surprise you? You do, actually. Actually, no. No. No, you do and you don't. I can, I imagine you'd be right laugh on a night out. 
we'd have a good time, I think. I think we if would, If we yeah. planned a trip, we, there'd be no arguments about what we're doing. I think we'd both be in agreement. Yeah, somewhere nice for lunch yeah. and then yeah. let's go and have some cockles. <laughs> oh, God, I can't eat anything <laughs> like that, mate. I pushed it too far. Listen, if it's from the sea, it's not for me. <laughs> Cannot eat anything from the sea. That's almost a campaign slogan. I yeah. think, I think <laughs> for the meat is. industry, I'm going to send it to them. If it's from the sea, it's not for me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, brilliant, Rachel. Well, yeah, I'd love to come down to Cornwall with you. How brilliant. And yes. We'll put it into the time capsule, keep it safe. Your perfect holiday venue. Okay, let's move on to number three. It is a book called Horrible, not Horrible, Horrible Murder by a man called Leonard de Vries. Now, <laughs> it's an anthology. Of Vict- this is how it's described. An anthology of Victorian crime and passion. And it is all extracts from the Illustrated Police News, wow. the Victorian newspaper. Now, the reason I've chosen this, and I still do have a copy of it at my mum's house, is because, uh, as I said, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up. And my granddad was uh, an avid reader. He was always reading. He'd read anything. Very well-read man. Uh, and he was always encouraging us to, to you know, read and, and get engage with literature and that kind of stuff. Mm. Now, when I was about six, maybe, maybe five or six, my grandma used to go to sewing class every Thursday morning and I would spend time with my granddad, which I absolutely loved. (laughs) Uh, And I remember finding this book on the bookshelf, Horrible Murder, and I picked it up and I opened it. And on the front of the book, it's a a yellow book, and on the the front of it is uh, obviously a Victorian sort of etching and it's a man putting a knife through a woman's head. Horrible. So obviously I'm intrigued and I opened it and in the book there's all kinds of different true stories, Mm -hmm. you know. So there's sort of stuff like, um, you know, orphan thrown down a well. (laughs) There's things like a child carried off by gorilla. Uh, And there's all sort of, on the back there's um, a grim reaper that's a skeleton and Mm. he's standing over somebody that's like, so it's all really morbid stories. I mean, some of them obviously true, very violent stories. Um, And then some of them that are a bit fantastical, but the, 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 I loved the, the pictures and obviously I was too young to read, but obviously the pictures did a lot of talking. So five years old, six years old, I get fascinated by this book. I remember my uh, grandma and my mum coming back and saying to my granddad, what on earth are you letting her read that for? And he said, well, she's, you know, she's being quiet. I think she really likes it. I got obsessed with this book and I used to carry it around and I was constantly looking at it. And I think this is the start of my interest in the supernatural and anything macabre, Mm. uh, anything morbid, because that's, you know, I'm fascinated with everything like that, you know, true crime, which my granddad was, he was very interested in anything a bit spooky. Yeah. Um, ghosts, the supernatural, legends, anything like that, mm. I am fascinated by. So much so, like, my sort of family just sort of roll their eyes at me and I'm like, oh, God, here she is. <laughs> She's going on about ghosts again. <laughs> or, like, my, so my, my boyfriend's always like, whenever we go anywhere new, like, we're going to Dorset, leave the week, the other month. And he, he, I'm like, oh, okay, so you're like, okay, where are we going? Where's Haunted? I'm like, right, okay, well, I found this place. So absolutely obsessed with it. And I, and I think I, I want to put that in because it influenced me so much and it was definitely the start of my lifelong interest in the macabre and supernatural. Yeah, and that's led to this mm. new podcast, is it? In a way, yeah, definitely. I think it also probably, I mean, because I, I, mean, I live in London now, I live in Walthamstow. 
I love London. Mm. Uh, I love it as a city. I think it's incredible. I've always found it fascinating. And I think that book probably had an influence on that as well in some way, because a lot of the stories, you know, were, were based in London. I mean, from, the, there's definitely the Jack the Ripper stuff in there as well. Mm. So I think that sparked my sort of love of London as well. So I think that book has been responsible for a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of my interests. I think it's weird, though, isn't it, when they describe things as uh, it's a crime of passion. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's it's of a time, but it it's sort of wrong, isn't it, really? You sort of go, what? <laughs> you know, this is generally what you're talking about, is men murdering women. Absolutely. Mm. Usually because they've been told that they don't want to go out with them anymore. Yeah, exactly. Although, you know, the last time... Uh, so the last time the guillotine was used in France, you probably know this, was in the late 1970s. And it was from a crime of passion as well. How French is that? Yeah, how French. The audio producer and person who's done Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all the Neil Gaiman things, Dirk Maggs, was a guest on this. Ooh. And he told me that the... Oh, he's a fantastic old actor. Oh, this is going nowhere. This is rubbish. <laughs> I'm useless at this sort of thing. Thank God I'm not a guest on this. That's all I can say. Well, thank God we're not at a dinner party. I know, you big oh, God, I'm, can I move? <laughs> <laughs> He's on about cockles and things. He's rubbish. Anyway, this old actor. Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee. There we are. There we go. Well done. Yeah. Was at the last public guillotine in France when he was a young man. Really? Yeah. Weird. You can't believe that actually as a young man, that was the world that he lived in. How macabre. It really macabre. Why did he go just out of curiosity? I mean, we might he was know. a child. He was taken. He was taken? He was taken to it, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, That's incredible. So, kids, we're going to go to Asda and you can pick a toy <laughs> or... <laughs> oh, aren't people awful? Aren't they weird? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, listen, as much as I'm interested in everything macabre and strange, I certainly would not go to anything like that. Uh, I went to an exhibition recently at the Museum of London at Docklands mm. about public executions. It's an amazing exhibition, but good God, it's so depressing when you hear about, you know, children back in like the 1600s being hanged and stuff like that. It, what was wrong with us? I know. We were awful. We are awful. I mean, I think we've still got a long way to go yet, but we're better than we were. Well, I don't know. Maybe we're regressing. <laughs> Who knows? I think we might be, yeah. you know. I played Pierpoint, the hangman, once in a play. Did you really? Yeah, and on stage we had to reconstruct the hanging of someone. And it was really disturbing every night, just because it was so realistic. Also, I was in charge, I was responsible for making sure that all the safety stuff was done right, because he actually dropped on the stage live. The doors opened wow. and he came through the trap and stopped suddenly. But it was a, it was a brace on his back rather than his, around his neck, thankfully. A lot of pressure on you there. Oh, it's terrifying. So what was your lovely granddad doing with this book? <laughs> <laughs> he, was just, he was just a person that would, would read pretty much anything, you know. He was a big Dickens fan. He was always reading, and he had lots of very, very old books as well. Because mm. um, obviously my granddad was, was old for a granddad in, in those times. Like My mum's the youngest of six, so my granddad was, was an old man when and my grandma, they were older grandparents. If he was in the army, yeah, he would have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to go to the flea market every Thursday, and he'd always come back with some sort of book. Um, and obviously when I started getting interested in the supernatural, it'd always bring me something back, you know, some some ghost. But, I mean, I've still got most of them. It'd always bring me something back, something supernatural or something a bit true crime. As I say, I think, he, you know, he was interested in sort of, I just 
think it was one of those things that he bought that he'd probably had a look through, just been left on the bookshelf, and then I suddenly find it, and there we go. They're fantastically admirable, those men, aren't they? This self-educated working-class man. Yes. All the men I've known like that, their breadth of knowledge is astonishing. Yeah, my granddad was so intelligent. I mean, he joined the army. He was in, I mean, throughout the entirety of World War II. Mm-hmm. I think he left school, whatever age you leave school at in, in those times. 15, I should think, yeah. Yeah, used to read all the time and just interested in the world around him. He used to do the, the Guardian cryptic crossword. Anything, stuff that he'd know, he'd be like, how do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been around a long time and I've read a lot. Exactly, yeah. These are the sort of people who should be running things. Oh. And because of birth, because of where they were born and the situation they were born in, they never got the opportunity, never got to it. The whole idea that, oh, anybody can come from anywhere and will end up doing these things. And that is true, you know, there are the Harold Wilsons of this world. Mm -hmm. But generally, that's not true. Generally, if you're born into a large house with lots of money and go to a private school, you will get the opportunities more often than the people who were born on a council estate. Absolutely, 100%. And I don't think that will ever change. No. That's never going to change. I'm sad that that might be true because I think it ought to change. We ought to recognise the waste of these people. Just that lack of... I mean, I'm a, a working-class person. I've not been to college or university. And, you know, sometimes like my friends that have been to maybe private school and been to university because I've got friends from all different backgrounds, which I absolutely am proud of, mm. there'll be times where... I'll sort of know something and, and they don't know it. And it's kind of like, oh, how do you know that? It's like, because I'm not bloody stupid. I have, <laughs> I read things, you know. I, I sometimes feel that I've got more curiosity about things and about the world around me than some of my friends have that have been well-educated, mm-hmm. as people would say. I think to have that natural curiosity, I'm really proud of that. I love learning things. I love finding things out and, you know. And I, I, I'm like my granddad now. I, I will read pretty much anything. I'll read any... I'll read everything from chat magazine to trying out a, a highbrow novel. I'll I'll give everything a go. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm really proud of that. And I think that's definitely come from my granddad. And I think Horrible Murder has definitely had a hand in that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm of the opinion, and this will be my, my working class roots coming through, that actually quite often in those situations, people will feel that they've had all the education they need because they've had such a good education. Yes. And they stop educating themselves. I think that an example of that would be the fact that Boris Johnson, when he needed a quip or to say something clever, he would go right back to what he learned at school. Yes. He would go back to the Latin quotes or Greek history. That's what he'd go back to. Yes. And in a way, you sort of think, well, that's because you haven't really taken anything else in since then. That's really... Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. That's very true, isn't it? But also he probably sees that, um, you know, he thinks, well, I, I know about Latin. Most of the plebs wouldn't know about Latin. So well, quite. That, yeah. that sets me apart from them again. A joke with my mates. They won't get it. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Interesting that, yeah. I think that's very true. I don't know. That comes from a complete bias, obviously. <laughs> Just, <laughs> as somebody once said a long time ago, not so much a chip on my shoulder as a deep fat fryer. Oh, yeah. I'm the same. <laughs> I'm the same. <laughs> right, OK, we're going to put that book in and keep it safe. And, um, Thank you. Try not to look at the pictures because they're a bit frightening. <laughs> they are. <laughs> <laughs> lovely. OK, we've got two left, Rachel. Yes, lovely. There we are. It's all going along very nicely, isn't it? We have to take a short break here for some adverts, but we'll be back in no time for more of the delightful Rachel Fairburn. See you soon.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to part two of My Time Capsule with the stand-up comedian Rachel Fairburn. Right, let's find out what else she'd like to put in her time capsule, shall we? Oasis, the band. Brilliant. Huge fan. Mm -hmm. Absolutely changed my life, Oasis. I remember hearing them for the first time, I think it was about 11 or 12, and Live Forever was on the radio, and I was like, what's this? Which was their third single, so, you know, there was other stuff to catch up on then. I was really excited. Um, Been to see them about 15 times. The first band I ever saw live Mm -hmm. in November 1995 in Manchester. Loved the music. Couldn't believe when I learned about them that they were from Manchester, like me. Mm-hmm. I lived most of my life in a, a council house with my grandparents. They were from a, a council estate. They were brothers. I got us and they're six years apart. I've got a younger sister who was six years younger than me who we never used to get on. <laughs> uh, that's fine now. We get on a lot better yeah. now that we're both grown up. So I just love everything about them. And, you know, I I love the music. Uh, They've been such a a huge part of my life. I mean, I've still got loads of stuff that I just collected over the years. I've got, you know, records, CDs, rarities, all at my mum's house. I've got uh, another thing that if I ever got stolen, oh, my heart would be broken. I've got boxes and boxes of newspaper clippings. What am I going to do with these? (laughs) My grandma used to, from the Manchester Evening News... When she got that delivered, if anything about Oasis had been in it, she'd cut it out for me and go, they're in the top drawer. So I used to keep all these things. Um, wow. Yeah, and th- this is what I loved about my, I mean, my granddad used to hate. Anything sort of modern music, he hated it, right? Uh-huh. He would not get involved. He was very much a classical music kind of person and he would not, he'd be like, oh no, don't want to hear it. And it's such a strange thing for a man who used to engage with the world around him, but anything modern music-wise, he'd hated it. But my grandma, she really loved popular music. She was always interested in stuff. She was 92 when my grandma died. And I'm a big fan of the band The Killers. Mm. And she knew who The Killers were. So I think (laughs) she was probably one of the few 92-year-old women in the country that knew about Brandon Flowers from The Killers. But 
I remember I, I treated myself a couple of years ago. I thought, I've, I've done well in comedy. I've gone full-time at comedy. So I'm going to buy myself a watch for Christmas. Um, not an expensive watch, a nice watch. And uh, you could have it engraved on the back. So I had uh, the date that I first went to see Oasis on the back of the watch. Uh, I, I just love them. Yeah, you're a real fan. A huge fan. And I don't want them to get back together, though. It doesn't need reviving. You know, we don't need any new music. They've both got solo careers. Mm -hmm. We don't need it. Yeah. I was a great defender of Oasis whenever anybody mm -hmm. said, oh, they're just copying the Beatles. Anybody who could write a song that you thought sounded a bit like something the Beatles might write ought to be admired, I think. Yeah. And actually, those songs completely stand up on their own. They had nothing to yeah, do with the Beatles. They're amazing songs. I mean, the catalogue of songs that Noel wrote are astonishing. Yeah, I agree. And I think as well, you know, there's definitely, obviously, there's a Beatles influence. But to me, Oasis don't sound like the Beatles. They sound like Oasis. Yeah. But also, you're never going to have another Oasis. You're never going to have another working-class band like that ever again. I think they were the last of that kind now. Yeah. Like, you will never have it again. Did you hate Blur? No, I liked Blur. You know, I, I still do. Um, the only thing is, I don't like him. Um, I find Damon... I like Damon Albarn's... Uh, his voice, he whistles quite a lot when he says S's, and I find that quite annoying. Um, <laughs> but I've been, I've been to see Blur. In fact, I went to see... So the first time I saw a band live was went to see Oasis uh, at the... Uh, as it was, the 9X Arena in Manchester. Uh, and I went with my friend Leanne from school and my mum. My mum had to come with us because we were only children. And then the week after, I went to see Blur at the GMAX in Manchester. Oh. So I was a Blur fan. Not so much now as I've got older. I still like a lot of... I like the, the big hits of Blur, but I'm not that into them now. I'm going to listen to Boys and Girls again. Great song. But I want to hear the sibilant S's. That's what I'm going to listen for next time. Once I've noticed, I can't stop <laughs> noticing it. But, but Girls and Boys, great song. Great song. Well, the thing I would say to anybody who doesn't think that Oasis are one of the greatest bands of all time, which I would say they are, mm -hmm. is any band who writes a song that when it starts playing, everybody joins in. That's an achievement. That's something that so few people have done. Annoyingly, David Baddiel and Frank Skinner have done it, but... <laughs> <laughs> but Wonderwall. Don't look back in anger, you know. And it's funny now because my nephew, who's 10, I think he's starting to get into Oasis, and I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is good. Am I going to be cool now? This is good. <laughs> Out come the clippings. Out come the clippings, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's see if he's into it as much as I was. Lovely. I love the idea also that you went with your mum, who you described as the funniest woman you know. Oh, she's so fun. Like, honestly, my mum is so funny. And in fact, that's, and I mentioned this on quite a lot of things, but she's the reason that I do stand-up, because... And we'll um, we'll get we'll get to this. This is my last item. I um mm. I used to write little funny stories at school. I was really good at English, but terrible at maths. So my mum sort of encouraged me with the English side of things, mm. and um, I used to write short little stories to to make her laugh. And and she said, "Oh, you should you know you should do stand up and that." And I used to be so shy. And he's saying, "Are you mad? Why on earth would I do that?" And then eventually. Years later, I saw an advert in the local paper. So, you know, when Labour used to do, did that New Deal thing for communities, they'd put a load of money in to do a stand-up course. And I saw it, a little clipping in the pa local paper. I was like, no. oh, I'm going to ring that up and I'm going to go on that. And I did it. And then my mum was like, see, I told you. I <laughs> you should do stand-up. So, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you can spot it in people as well. And it's a good idea to encourage people in the thing that they do well. I think if you're good yeah. at English, go with it. Definitely. My little granddaughter the other day, 
my daughter sent me a video of her. <laughs> she had come downstairs in her pajamas and said, Mum, I'm, I'm a bit worried. I think I might be allergic to nuts because I've been eating this Snickers bar and it's made my cheeks swell. And she bit into it and said, oh, yeah, no, there they go. And then she turned around and walked away and she padded her trousers so that her ass cheeks were enormous. How old is she? She's eight. That's really funny. It's really funny. That is very, very funny. <laughs> Do you know what? That would be a belting sketch, that. That is so funny. <laughs> So maybe, maybe one day when in about 10 years' time, you'll see her on the circuit. Maybe. Fingers mm. crossed. Yeah, why not? Yeah. I'd be very proud. All right, so Oasis, into the time capsule. That's a fantastic thing to have in there. Right, so we've got one thing left, Rachel. Mm-hmm. So this is my thing that I want buried, isn't it? This is the thing you want to get rid of. Right, okay. So I would say the thing I want to get rid of is the shyness and lack of confidence I used to have when I was a child and when I was younger. I And I, I don't say this lightly, I had chronic shyness. I was so, so shy. I wouldn't speak. I mean, let's put it this way. A lot of my earliest memories are from behind either my mum or my grandmother's legs when I'm hiding from people. Mm. I wouldn't talk to people. I wouldn't contribute to, to sort of conversations. I mean, of course, at school I had friends and stuff like that. I wasn't a weird kid. I mean, apart from reading Horrible Murder, I wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't picked on or anything like that. I was just a naturally shy person. Yeah. So okay with people once you got to know them. Yeah. Mm. But even to the extent of, I used to be nervous of family members. I dread mm. sort of people coming round, you know, and I'd be like, oh God, I've got to talk to this person. Or, oh God, God is, or, you know, I'd agonise over stuff, you know, like if I started a new job, I'd be like, oh, God, I've got to talk. And I used to find it so exhausting and, and so I used to go red all the time. I mean, I still blush now, mm. but, oh, God, if someone spoke to me, I'd just go bright red. If I was in a shop and I had to ask for something, it would be the worst thing in the world. And just having that, being shy, but forcing yourself not to be, but then having that just lack of confidence in yourself, which a lot of younger people do have, mm-hmm. you know, which is quite a natural thing as you're finding your way in the world. But I think I had it a lot worse than most people. And I, it definitely held me back from doing things maybe that I, I would have wanted to do when I was younger. Or This is such a weird thing that I remember being nervous about. So when I was about seven... <laughs> My mum had booked tickets to take me and my grandma to see the Manchester Boys Choir. Mm. At, I think it was at like the Bridgewater Hall or whatever it was. And I just remember being nervous about it as a child all day. Why? I wasn't in the choir. <laughs> and I was so nervous and dreading it and like thinking, oh God, and thinking all these situations like, what if this, what if that? To the extent of my mum was like, oh, you can stay here, we're, we're going, you can stay with your granddad. Mm. I agonised and I was nervous about it and I dreaded it. And I, I honestly, I do this about things all the time and, and just that shyness and not putting yourself forward in situations, like just being in the background of everything. And was that a problem at school? It was really strange because it's sort of infant and junior school that I went to. I enjoyed school, I enjoyed sort of the work and I enjoyed that 
But I did kind of see it as a bit of a social occasion mm. with my friends. Like I enjoyed seeing, I had a close group of friends and, you know, yeah. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed playtime. That's what I enjoyed. <laughs> and netball. That was pretty much it. Yeah. It was when I got to secondary school. I don't know. I just didn't, I sort of went a bit rebellious, which is quite weird to say for someone who was quite shy. I don't think I was a very good rebel because I was too shy to be a complete rebel, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. like I, but is that a sort of a protectiveness? Rather than sit here and maybe be a target, I'm going to make myself appear as if you don't want to come near me because I'm crazy. Yeah, kind of. I don't know. It's just... And, and I was never sort of picked on at school and I was never bullied and I never bullied anybody, never got involved in anything like that. I just feel like I was very much happy to sink into the background of things and not... Mm -hmm. And this is why I don't think I enjoyed... I hated school. I hated secondary school. With every, I mean, if someone said to me, you can go back there now, I'd be like, absolutely not. I hated it. I found it boring. I think maybe I just stopped engaging with things because, A, I was bored, I think. and But also I think I didn't have confidence in myself to... I mean, again, I enjoyed English and I was always very good at that. But with other stuff, I, I was frightened to push myself maybe because I, I didn't think I could do it and I sort of lacked confidence in my ability. And, and it's that classic thing of like, all the things I know now, if I could go back to then, <laughs> I'd be brilliant. So when did you discover it, though? When did you burst out of this shyness? Do you know, it's weird because I am actually still shy now. It's just that nobody believes me now because obviously I do stand up and, you know, I can... And after, you know, after over a decade in performing, I can have a chat and I can meet new people and I'm pretty good. I think maybe now that I realise that I'm not the only person in the world that feels like that, mm -hmm. that's a, a big thing because I used to think, what's wrong with me? You know? But I think, as I say, I'm still quite shy. I, one thing I do think that has helped me a lot was moving to London because, you know, basically I was brought up in Manchester, lived there all my life. And I'd never, I'd not been to college, I'd not been moved away to, I'd not been to university, so I'd never broken out of that sort of bubble that I'd always been in. Yeah. And I think four years ago when I was like, well, I'm going to move to London, it was like, I've got to do this on my own. And I've then I've got to find a, a job when I first moved down here. I've got to do all this by myself. But you can reinvent yourself in those situations, can't you? You can, if you, yes. moving to London, for a lot of people going to college, going off to university, that's the moment you sort of go, well, I can now become whoever I decide to be. So if I was a shy girl and everybody knew I was shy, these people don't know me. Very true, yes. And I, I think entering the world of stand-up as well, that changed a lot of things because I had friends from childhood, I had friends that, you know, I'd, I'd met through work, but these are people that had always known me as, like, quiet, shy, little Rachel, you know. Mm. And then once I started doing stand-up, and you... You know, you know, you you know, comedians that they they can be right pains in the neck, <laughs> and you've got to really hold your own. And if you're in a green room and you want to be part of the conversation, you've got to push to be part of the conversation because comedians will just talk over you, mm -hmm. especially the blokes, because they <laughs> want to tell the funny story. They want to tell what happened at the gig last night. You know that they. they they want to be the centre of attention constantly. Yeah. In a way, that green room thing is a sort of, a, it's like a warm-up, isn't it? Yes. This is where I get my mouth going. Yes, yes. And don't get me wrong, there is such a nice camaraderie as well. You know, we, we do get on, and we do laugh, you know, we do support each other as well. Well, you all know what you've been through. Yeah, I think so, yeah. But I, I'd say entering the world of stand-up and... You know, getting those first few gigs under my belt and realising, oh, I want to do this and having a focus, I think that definitely... I mean, from going to being such a shy person to 
to, to then being a stand-up comedian. Mm. It sounds insane, but it worked for me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> a lot of actors I know are actually very shy people who yes. don't like to be noticed and don't like people to look at them or take any notice of them at all. It's weird. Yes. I'm not like yep. that. I've always been a show-off. <laughs> And maybe to my detriment, but uh, but I, I'm not. And it's very difficult when you're not like that to understand people when they are. I remember often yes. as a child saying to people, "What? What are you worried about? It's, what? It's, you, well, you're not going to die, are you? You know? I mean, yes. absolutely. It doesn't matter if you go out there and everybody thinks you're useless. So what? Yeah, it doesn't matter. So I'm in a way I'm fortunate in those situations, yep. but it also means that many times I've stood up and done things that other people have gone. What the fuck? What? Why were you doing that? And I go, I don't know, I just thought it might be funny. <laughs> no shame. I like it. I don't care. I love it. I love it. I wish I'd have been, I mean, if I had been like that, I'd have been an absolute nightmare probably. But I love it. Yeah. Good. I think, yeah, I think more people should feel like that. It's definitely better than being shy. Oh, God, it's awful. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You watch a child who you know can do things. That's mm-hmm. the worst thing. When you know they can do something, you say, well, sing, you sing that song. You're, you've got a lovely singing voice. And they go, no, no, I can't. Or tell me that story. Tell them that story. That's a really funny story. And they go, no, 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 I don't. I yeah. Don't. That's why it's difficult for me to understand because I would have immediately started singing and I would have immediately told them the story. <laughs> I would have done both. You'd have done both, <laughs> And then yeah. I'd do a bit of tap dancing, yeah. If, yeah. Even now, I get, if someone says to me, so, for example... You know, I the first time I met my boyfriend's family, of course, I was very nervous. And I was, I was like, oh, God, this is awful. I'm shy. Met them, get on with them, great, fine. Very comfortable, love them to bits. But if they then say to me, oh, are you coming round this Saturday? Oh, we've got a, some family friends coming. And I'd be like, even now I'm like, oh, God, oh, God, <laughs> oh, no, I can't bear it. New people, oh, no, I hate it. And I will agonise and agonise and agonise, and I'll probably meet them, I'll probably go beetroot red, and there I'll probably like, oh, she's the comedian, are you sure? <laughs> and it, it just, it's that, it never leaves you, but you manage it better. Yeah, and of course you would be the person people would turn to if they suddenly say, well, somebody needs to make an announcement. Uh, okay, Rachel, Rachel. Absolutely, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I did, um, my friend, my best friend Laura got married on, on the 1st of April um, mm. this year, last year. <laughs> it was quite a relaxed scenario and my friend Laura used to do stand-up she doesn't do it anymore she's working towards a PhD in criminology or she's very very smart Mm. and uh, I was a maid of honour and I had to do a speech but I was like well I'm not writing something I'll just I just want it to be seem you know natural whatever I say you know I I was like I do stand-up I'll be all right Oh, God, all morning I was agonising over there. And I'm thinking, I do stand-up. I've performed to hundreds of people. I do my own show. I've done the Edinburgh Fringe. Come on, Rachel, you've been on telly doing comedy. Yeah. And I, I just was like... Con-. And then I got up on the, the, the stage and I was like... Uh, uh, for the first... <laughs> and, then I, and then I was fine. Can't remember what I said. Came off stage, downed a glass of wine. Thank God. It's like, put me in a different scenario and I am just as nervous as anybody else. Mm. So does that mean that when you started, did you hide behind a character? Did you become someone else when you did stand-up? When I started out stand-up, I used to be deadpan and I I was more one-liners. So I I very much was like, rather than you getting to know me as a person or my personality, I was just telling jokes. So I think I was very much hiding behind the act. And I was really sort of deadpan, stilted, and it was very much like, 
Thank you. Uh. And then it, it took it takes a while for you to find your voice, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And then you find it, you never shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I love your voice. I love listening to you, and uh, I look forward to seeing you on tour. I'm going to come to the Brighton, down to the Comedia. Are you? Oh, that'd be lovely. Yeah. Thank you. I've had a lovely time doing this. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Rachel Fairburn. Please do subscribe to this podcast before moving on, and we'd also appreciate it if you'd rate us on the podcast provider you're using this to listen on. We're on all of them, actually, and some give you the chance to write a short review. So if you're a budding Norman Mailer, feel free to let your prose flow. If you're a budding e-mailer, don't bother. I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. My wife says I'm on it far too much, but if you fancy joining me on any of those, it would be lovely to see you there. Feel free to message me about anything. I nearly always reply. I'm an absolute sucker for it. As, of course, is our producer, John, who you can find on some sites under the name of My Time Capsule, which coincidentally is the same name as our... Actually, it's not a coincidence at all, is it? Anyway, see you there. You can listen to the theme tune on Spotify. In fact, you can download it and keep it forever. It was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music, another name that John uses. Yeah, he's obviously got something to hide. Anyway, he produces this podcast as the production company Cast Off Productions. There he goes again. I can't trust him as far as you can throw him. But his real name is John Fenton Stevens. Hmm sounds familiar do tell your friends if you've enjoyed listening and i hope you'll listen again we have loads of episodes with some wonderful people already available and amazingly we seem to manage to create two episodes a week of this podcast so i hope you appreciate the effort your very kind support suggests that you do so thanks I very much enjoyed meeting and chatting with Rachel, particularly because it led me to Google the best jokes from the Edinburgh Fringe. Now, regular listeners will know just how much I like a silly joke, even if it's not funny. And many of the winners are just that, extremely silly jokes, but they are funny. I mean, like this one, Dan Antoposky's joke from 2009. Hedgehogs, why can't they just share the hedge? Brilliant. Or Tim Vine's classic, I've just been on a once-in-a-lifetime holiday. I'll tell you what, never again. Tim has been a guest on My Time Capsule, so if you missed it, it's waiting for you. My favourite joke is, of course, by another guest of mine, the wonderful Nick Helm. So I'll leave you with that one and let you soak in the bubble bath that is the glory of his wit. His was, I needed a password eight characters long, so I picked Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That's it, go on, lie back, relax, and let it soothe your aching soul. Ah. <sighs> Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.